This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Hello and welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood. I'm your host, Daniel M. Lavery, and with me in the studio this week is Catherine Babmagura, a writer and journalist who's contributed to, among others, Slate, Quartz, CNBC, and NBC News, a frequent podcast and radio guest with appearances on NPR and Lifehackers Upgrade, her first book, Poe for Your Problems, Uncommon Advice from History's Least Likely Self-Help Guru, came out yesterday. Kat, welcome to the show. I am so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I am so happy you're here, not least because in a really unlooked for moment of kismet, uh, I recently got the most Poe-like question I think this show has ever gotten, and and it could not have been more timely. I kind of feel like something ominous and exciting is going to happen as a result of it. For sure. It's like he's had a hand in it somehow. Yeah. And congratulations on uh, almost you know the exact same day that your book came out. I hope you've been doing delightfully macabre things to try to celebrate. Yeah, it almost happens on its own. It's kind of in keeping with the theme here is if you spend time with Poe, your experience becomes Poe-like. I love that. I had not given too much thought uh, about about that, but of course that makes sense. People who read a lot of Holmes end up getting drawn into like the great game and become themselves more Holmesian. And it also makes a lot of sense that the more time you spend with Poe, the more time Poe spends with you looking back as it were. Um, that's so exciting. Are you planning, by the way, on bringing like a Poean sensibility to your answers today? Are you hoping to uh, bridge the gap between him and you? Where do you where do you fall on that? Yeah, actually, I took notes ahead of time and I have an idea about what Poe would have said for each question and then my own answer, which may be a little bit less exciting and macabre. I am. I love that you're going to give us one of each that that, again, pleases me to no end. And I'm also banking on the fact that you might have a less dreadful sounding French accent than I do. So I'm going to ask you to read our first letter because the subject line is like a fun little French wordplay that the letter writer gave us. And I am, it's just too many vowels right in a row and I'm scared. I'm going to give it my best shot. You tell me how I do. Um, L au moi. My husband and I, mid-20s, are newly polyamorous. I went on a few dates but felt guilty and overwhelmed. My husband, meanwhile, feels completed. I've been trying to be open and supportive as he discovers this part of himself. He loves his latest partner, Elle, and sees a future with her. I can't stand Elle. I find her rude and condescending. She said really mean things to my husband when she drank too much and broke a promise to stick to wine and beer when visiting. He says it's because of her mental health issues, including a personality disorder. I'm also mentally ill, obviously not in the exact same way, but I don't think it's ever an excuse to hurt others. Last week, while he was visiting her six hours away, I got really sick, though not with COVID. I asked him to leave one day early to come help me. He told me that would mean breaking Elle's trust, quote unquote, and would imply that his relationship with her was lesser than his relationship with me. We're trying to talk through our feelings. He thinks that if he's more present when he's at home, things will be better. I'm dreading the idea of having Elle in my life long-term, especially since he started expressing a desire to live closer to her, her husband, and her boyfriend. The idea of moving away from both of our wonderful, supportive families makes me anxious and unhappy. 
As the only one in the polycule not dating Al, I feel like I would be an outsider. Plus, we want to have kids in a couple of years, and I've always thought we'd have our families close by when that happened. How do I deal with all of these big feelings? Am I right to be upset that he didn't come when I'm sick? Or was I really trying to exert power over the relationship, quote unquote? Please help. Lots, lots to sort of pick over here. I I, I think the thing that feels... Important to me to begin with, I suppose, is the is the last sentence. Am I right to be upset that he didn't come when I was sick? Or was I really trying to exert power over the relationship? I think a lot of this seems to stem from possibly missed conversations when you and your husband decided to open this relationship letter writer or things that maybe you thought you agreed on when a lot of this was still theoretical, but that changed once you started enacting it. But these are not in opposition. Uh, trying to exert power over his relationship does not necessarily have to be something that you need to apologize for or feel bad about if that is one of your understandings of what you wanted out of a polyamorous marriage. There are certainly people who have polyamorous relationships where they say each relationship is going to like exist somewhat autonomously. And while I like welcome hearing about your thoughts and feelings, I will be making the decisions in the interests of my various relationships. And then there are other ones where people say, I welcome and invite you to maybe not like make the calls for me, but like I, you know, it's not a problem uh, if you want to try to exert power because you and I are in a primary relationship where we put one another's needs uh, before other relationships. So I think the question really there is, do you and your husband have a really different understanding of what type of polyamorous relationship you're in? Because if you're saying, uh, you know, I want the people that we are in relationships with uh, elsewhere to be, you know, important to us. But if one of us is sick or has an emergency, I want us to both agree that's the most important thing. And your husband says, that doesn't interest me. Like, then it's about, I think, more than just L or more about this one episode. It's a question of how do you want to inform one another's romantic decisions with other people? What sort of expectations do you have of one another's? And what sense do you have of if, if, if I put my foot down as your you know spouse, as the person that you were in a relationship with first, where, when do I expect you to listen to that? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's for some people... Being there when someone's sick, that's kind of their love language. You use a very lame term. Uh, I can understand that that would be important to you. I do think it's kind of like defining how this is meant to go for both of them. And it seems like the conception is different on each side. Yeah. But, you know, really, I think if if you hear this letter writer and you think, yeah, I absolutely would want to be able to say, I'm sick. I, I'm really sick. I want you to come home and take care of me. I want to, ex you know... Exerting power might sound freighted, especially if your husband kind of used it to imply like, wow, that wasn't very like generous of you, <laughs> um, which would be a little shitty on his behalf. Um, you know, but exerting power just means like I'm moving, I'm acting in the world. You know, when I pick up a cup, I'm exerting power. It's not necessarily like that you are a witch in a castle, uh, like wielding an evil scepter, demanding that people uh, supplant themselves to you. So I, I, I think it's clear to me that you're feeling pretty vulnerable and pretty hesitant about expressing your fears, your anxieties, your desires, possibly in part because you're worried that your husband will respond with indifference. But I think 
something pretty key here is to say like, yes, I was absolutely trying to exert power over that relationship, power that I think is absolutely within my remit. Um, It's actually very important to me that, you know, if your car broke down and I was on a date with somebody, uh, you know, I would feel really good if you called me and said, I need your help. Uh, that's the kind of power I want us to be able to exert over one another. And I don't think that that makes me controlling or bad. It's simply power uh, in the sense of like energy or action. So that I think is the sort of bigger picture conversation to have, not merely, I don't really like L and you really do, but you know, if he wants to move and you don't and and you want to be able to discuss that honestly with him and you're worried he's going to say, it sounds to me like you're trying to exert power. How are you actually going to be able to like find the um, sort of mental clarity and the confidence to say, yes, I want to build a life together where you and I are, you know, a primary unit and I'm not sure that we have those same values. You, you got to have that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a piece in there of be firm in your boundaries, listen to your feelings, and maybe, you know, if you're if you've just gone through this major lifestyle change and your feelings are still kind of churning, maybe you don't have to agree to any major life changes like a move to say to him, you know, I'm still getting my footing in this situation and I can't make that call right now. We can revisit it at XYZ date, maybe, you know, a month and a half, three months, however long it's gonna take you to be in touch with your feelings and figure out whether you're comfortable with this or not, because it's your life. Yeah. And I think a lot of people can have what feel fairly like thorough and substantive conversations about a polyamorous relationship before they, you know, take that into practice. And then you find, oh, we didn't actually cover everything because you you can't always cover everything. You don't always know what's going to happen or how you're going to feel until you do it. So, you know, I don't mean to say any of that to suggest like, wow, letter writer, you didn't do enough homework. And now, you know, your husband's really hurting your feelings. But one thing that may be coming up is he may be feeling, you know, uh, I want to be able to really prioritize my other relationships. I would not want to take your dislike of someone else into consideration when I date somebody. I, I love you and I care about you, but this is my own little area of autonomy. And that might be way, way different from the kind of polyamory that you were envisioning. Um, when you started, which might've been much more like you and I are the Sunday and these other people, you know, we'll treat them like people. We're not just going to like call people over and kick them out, but they're going to be cherries on the top of the Sunday. They're going to be sprinkles. Um, and so you might have thought as a matter of course, you know, if one of us isn't comfortable, the other person will say, great, I'll never see them again. And so, you know, you are, uh, encountering, I think, uh, trickiness here because, uh, it just seems like your, your priorities are really different. And that does not mean, you know, I, I do think you should take into consideration the possibility that this will move you in really different directions and you will ultimately find that kids are not on the table or that a, a lifelong marriage is not on the table. And that might be really sad, but it's not necessarily um, the worst possible outcome. I think the worst possible outcome would be uh, swallowing your feelings and deferring to your husband's feelings for L while privately feeling awful and lost. So, you know, you say that you went on a few dates and felt guilty and overwhelmed you don't say if you said anything to your husband um, or anyone else in your life. And I'm just curious, like, did you just come home and privately feel bad and hope it would get better? What'd you do with those feelings? I I think you need to share them with your husband and you need to spend some time picking through what did I feel guilty about? What, what overwhelmed me? How am I doing? It's painful when you both have really different experiences to something like this, but it is not your job to minimize your own experience because your husband seems happy. Your job is to, be a be a force in your own relationship and say how you're doing. 
Yeah, it's so important to show up for yourself. And I would just, anyone in their 20s has my sympathy. My mom always says, if you can survive your 20s, you can survive anything. (laughs) Uh, I also say that I got married when I was 24. And a lot of times you just have to have fights because there's not a precedent in your relationship or some issue you're facing. It has to kind of be established. And there's a working through period for every major thing you encounter from finances to kids or whatever. Not that not every couple fights, but I'm just saying it can be totally normal to have these be problems and to have to be worked through. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the, the line that also really sticks out to me is, uh, I want to call it a little bit of bullshit on your husband's like, if I left this trip early, it would be breaking her trust. People cut visits short. It might mean disappointing her and it might mean doing something he didn't really want to do, but it's not a violation of some ethical agreement or commitment that he's made. So I think he was kind of covering up his actual motivation, which is just, no, I'm having a great time here with Elle and I don't want to come home and like, you know, nurse you um, with, with one that he thought sounded better. And I don't think much of that decision on his part. Um, And again, like the thing here, you know, he says, I don't want to imply that my relationship with Elle is less important than my relationship with you. It sounds like that is in pretty direct conflict with how you see your relationship with your husband. So uh, again, the, the, the thing here is like, husband, I, it's very important to me that your relationship with Elle is less important than your relationship with me. I don't mean that we need to like have a, a pyramid where you like, you know, call her up every day and say, remember, I love you 40% less than my wife or anything. But like, if we don't agree on that, then I, I do not understand how you two would be able to make shared decisions around where you will live or whether or not you will have children together. That is an excellent point because those are humongous shared decisions and the biggest commitments that you make. I think the vibe the letter writer seems to be picking up on seems legit to me kind of what you're saying that the husband is going in a direction. So yeah, I would hope this would come out um, to the letter writer's satisfaction and happiness. And that may, I'm sorry to say that may mean saying we don't want the same things. And in fact, the things that we want most are in direct conflict with one another and we have to split up, which I realize is not what the letter writer wants. But and, and I'm not saying that has to happen. I'm just saying, like, I think you do have to consider that possibility. Um, my sort of last other thoughts are, I, I would, I would spend, I wouldn't spend much time trying to litigate whether or not, like, her drinking that one time or whatever mean thing she said is, you know, your problem to solve. To me, that's like, yeah, that sounds frustrating, but it's not nearly as big as my husband just said. I think of these relationships as being like equal or on par with one another. And it doesn't sound like you want that. You say you're trying to talk through your feelings. I, I, I encourage you letter writer to do a little more talking and be a little more honest and don't just say things that you think your husband wants to hear. That might mean bringing in some trusted friends. That might mean bringing in a relationship counselor. Uh, that might mean, you know, doing a little journaling and writing some thoughts down before you talk so you can keep track of your feelings. You know, he thinks that if he's more present when he's at home, things will be better. Sure. I think being present is good too. It seems pretty clear to me that the implication there is if I have a free reign to conduct my relationship with Elle without any input from you, then in in return, I will be more present at home and will have a better relationship. That doesn't fucking add up, buddy. Like, that's not Yeah, there is a... 
whiff of the self-serving about that too. Yeah, more than a whiff, more than a whiff. And I really don't want to like stigmatize your husband here for enjoying a new relationship or having a good time being polyamorous when you have been having a hard time. But the way that he has, you know, it, it seems to me like that that justification of like, I'll be more present if I get this stuff. And so you don't want to mess with this stuff because then if you mess with it, I could be present and then we both be sad. That's manipulative. And I, you know, unless you've left out a significant conversation the two of you had had a while back, it sounds like he is introducing ideas about, I want these relationships to be like co-evil, co-evil. I don't know how to say that word out loud. Co-evil, I think, I'm not sure. It's a Poe day. We're going to say evil. <laughs> yeah. Uh, don't move to be closer to L. Don't, you know, countenance that idea. You are not there. You don't want that. That is not something that you want. Uh, that is a deal breaker for you, at least right now. And you need to, you know, unfortunately, the the answer to so much of this is like, you're going to have to say things to your husband that you know he doesn't really want to hear right now. And that might very well lead to a conversation where you two admit that you want opposing things. But I would just say, if there's a part of you that wants to hold back some of the truth so that you can try to like squeeze out a compromise, I just think you're going to continue to feel isolated, alone, and sad. And your husband will continue to take miles where you're giving inches. Yeah. And there's an, you can throw good time after bad sometimes. If you guys come to a point where you truly want to go in different directions, then I know it's easy for someone to say who's not in it, but biting the bullet on that one can be the best idea for everyone. And again, I don't mean to say that that is inevitable. Lots of people go through like rough periods at the beginning of a big change in their relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, But if nothing else, I think part of what you're going to need to say is like, you know, Elle and I are not friends. Elle and I are not in a relationship. Um, I can talk to you about ways that I can give you room to enjoy this relationship. And I'm not necessarily saying that like you must never mention her name within these walls. But if if part of what you've been envisioning is we will live close to Elle, we as a couple will be incorporating her into our joint decisions. I'm here to tell you that I won't be doing that. Hopefully we can find a way to work through that. If that's a deal breaker for you, let's have that conversation now. But I will not be doing those things. I am not interested in being... Uh, experiencing a lot of compersion around L. L and I are not going to be, you know, sisters in arms. That's not happening. So again, that's scary clarity. Um, and good luck. I think that's my final thoughts on the subject. Do you have any remaining ones before we get to the big Poe one? Just that I think that's a fabulous script, what you just said. I might suggest just saying that because it's very firm and not unloving either. I mean, I do want to be careful because I think you know, obviously it feels clear to me that there's a number of ways that the husband is acting like a dick in this. But I do also want to give a lot of room to, you know, the difference between talking about open or polyamorous relationships theoretically versus like now there are new people in our lives and we are establishing new connections and new commitments that you can't necessarily like plan out ahead of time like a a mathematical equation. That's genuinely difficult. Um, And that's part of the project uh, that people embark upon when they try to figure out what kind of polyamorous relationship they would like to have. And so I don't want to just say like, oh, he's bad for really enjoying polyamory. You're only supposed to like it a little bit. It's supposed to be like a fun little extra bonus, but those people are provisional and, you know, unimportant. So I I didn't want to go too far on that, but I'd like you to cut a trip short a day because I'm really, really sick 
oh no, that would be a violation of trust. Fuck that. That's nonsense. Right. Yes, I think that's cool to call it on. Also, I think your French sounded great. It sounded great to me. Oh, good. I can't promise you anything because I don't know French, but it sounded really good. I know I had you read our first letter, but I would love it if you would also read our second letter because, again, it's so poey. I just feel like you yes. must. Would you mind? Right. I would do a Poe accent if I could, but or Vincent Price, rather. Uh, okay, here's the letter. My father is an architect and builder who designed the house I grew up in, although he sold the house in 2014. Shortly before the new owners moved in, my father revealed to me that the house has a secret room. I never knew about it growing up, and neither did my brothers, though it shared a wall with my childhood bedroom. Since then, my brothers and I have all become estranged from our parents. However, I'm still haunted by the knowledge that my father never told the new owners about the hidden room. It is extremely well hidden. Should I ask my estranged father to tell the new owners they have been living in a house with a secret room for seven years? Should I contact the new owners myself? I think they would be creeped out, but isn't it better to know? How do I approach this conversation? Great question. What does Edgar Allan Poe have to say on the subject? I would say he tell you to write a semi-satirical gothic short story about it and become famous for the next two centuries. I like that his advice is just like how to reenact his own life. Like, here's how to be more like me, Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, he was his own biggest fan, for sure. I, I appreciate that very much. Um, yeah, I, I love this. I, I, by the way, I just, I just want to say, like, I love this problem. I don't love letter writer that you're estranged from your father and you've had like a fraught relationship and you're really anxious right now. I just... What a wonderful, like, architectural echo of a relational dynamic. Like, oh, my father and I with this fraught relationship, there's things that I feel like have been withheld or, or dissembled or, or, you know, uh, that are just missing from our ability to connect. Oh, he had a secret room in the house that he built? Yeah, that, that, that's a pretty tidy metaphor. Yeah, it re- the, in the fall of the House of Usher, there's the split down the middle of the house and the possibly incestuous brother-sister relationship and the tomb under the house that is extremely vaginal in the description of. So yeah, that uh, architecture standing in for family dynamics, it's totally a thing in Poe and clearly elsewhere. I always have loved uh, Fall of the House of Usher. And I love, too, the the implication, which is if you want to follow that story, you know, you know, wait till that family is out of the house and then tear it down. Yeah, I've often thought, what would that Zillow listing look like? How would you explain it? It would, it would probably go way over asking now just because of the market. But. It would absolutely be the kind of thing that somebody would like screen cap and put on Twitter. Like, can you believe this shit? Um and that's really something uh, to to bear in mind. So I, I know you and I discussed this briefly before we started recording, and both of us kind of immediately both went to like worst case scenario. And then also I think like it's probably not that. And so I guess I, I want to try to offer the letter writer two competing uh, senses here, one of which is like it's probably not anything hideous, if only because he told you about it. But I get why you feel freaked out when men build secret rooms in their houses adjoining their children's bedroom and never tell anyone for decades or years. It's not usually because they were doing something good in there. It's sometimes this is where I murder people or this is where I have imprisoned a woman. 
again, I don't think that that is what happened, but I definitely get why that was sort of the first maybe set of fears that came to the reader's mind, right? I mean, the, the letter writer's mind. There are stuffed animals and rainbows painted on the walls, and I would be shocked. It's on a spectrum in my mind of like some kind of Fifty Shades scenario to something much darker, and I hope it's neither of those things, obviously. Yeah, I mean, again, if it was like I'm, I, I'm, a, I'm a billionaire and like I, I have like a fun BDSM dungeon uh, with my, you know, journalist girlfriend, that's actually pretty okay compared to the things that it could be. Um, and, but yeah, you you do not have to treat this like an immediate emergency. But uh, I think probably mention it to the new owners. And I think kind of the way that you phrased it, letter writer, was fine. Like. I don't know this room. I just learned about it. I realized this is a little weird and kind of out of the blue. I just thought that you should know. Maybe it. Maybe you learned about it during the inspection. Maybe you didn't. I don't know what's in it. Um, that's all that you would really have to say is just, here's some information about your house. Sorry if it's weird to hear from me. Be well. Uh, definitely does not rise to the level of needing to reestablish contact with an estranged father, especially because there's no way of knowing that he would do it if you asked him to, right? Like, I don't want to presume too much on the nature of their estrangement, but it is difficult to ask someone a favor when you have, when it's your first conversation after being estranged. Yeah, maybe it's not worth reaching out on that level. I think it's a good idea to maybe just write the homeowner a letter, something to give them, like to let them take their own pace with ingesting this information, which might be easier than a phone call or anything else. Um, and you don't have to be on the spot. Then, I mean, it could be something pleasant that they come to really like. Or it could be just bizarre, but... Yeah, it may also be, like, one of those, like, architectural features that's just, like, mostly empty. He just thought it was neat. Or it might have been, like, you know, a garden variety, like, I made myself a man cave and I didn't tell anyone about it. Kind of a goofy thing that's, like, weird and bewildering and kind of dumb that he would tell you about it years after the fact, but, like, not anything nutty. But, you know... All that is speculation. I also want to throw out the possibility. I don't think it's super likely, but it sounds like your dad's kind of an odd duck. He might just be making that up. Again, I don't think it'll cost you anything to email the new owners and let them know briefly that you think there's another room in their house. Um, and I agree that, like, on balance, go for it. But, you know, hold hold it lightly that, you know, he might have just been messing with you. And in a larger sense, you're not responsible for cleaning up stuff that your dad did or does. You can absolutely just let it ride if you prefer to. But if it's stuck on your mind, then go ahead and relieve yourself of the, the issue. Yeah. And you just, you don't have to worry about like explaining it to them beyond that. That's again, not your responsibility. It's not as if you were like, well, I had reason to believe that he had someone, you know, chained up in there and I never did anything. And now I have to reckon with like my, you know, moral failure. Like it is just like a weird fact. Your father told you and you never really knew how much weight to give it. And, um, it will be a weird but fine email to send and you will feel, you know, I don't know, a different kind of uncomfortable afterwards. Because of course then the new question that's going to be in the back of your mind is like, have they looked? Like, did they find it? What's in it? You know, previously it's like, what? just what's in it? And should I email? And then it's going to be, have they looked yet? Did they get my email? Did they take like a sledgehammer to the wall immediately? Um and and you may never be able to learn the uh, answer to that question. But man, I guess congratulations on having uh, an interesting 
externalization of a painful dynamic? Yeah, for sure. When is life ever this metaphorical? That's pretty crazy. Yeah, those those opportunities are often few and far between. Hello, Big Mood, Little Mood listeners. I'm breaking in here for a moment to let you know that at this point in our conversation, my recorder stopped working. So the rest of the show is unfortunately a slightly less than pristine backup recording. Thanks for bearing with us. Now let's continue. On the subject of metaphor and of life, uh, I feel, you know, pretty excited to have you here the day after your book comes out. I'm sure you have already been asked to sort of, uh, you know, do the sort of elevator pitch. Um, so I don't want to just ask you, like, tell us about your book. But, you know, I would love to hear maybe a little bit about what it's been like uh, having the book finally come out into the world and what you feel the most excited to sort of discuss as as people begin to read it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure you know this. It, books take so long to come to market and it takes so long to like, start getting feedback and hear, like having your book walk around the world and come home again. Um, that's extremely exciting to me. Like I said, it's been nearly five years since I had the idea. Selling the proposal and writing the book took forever. And it was also a deeply weird situation in that I was writing the book in 2020. So during the pandemic, which is super Poe-like and that he wrote Mask of the Red Death, which a lot of writers have used to interpret our current moment too. Um, and I also, I was pregnant. So there was literally someone attempting to live through me which is a bit like Ligeia. So it just, it became more and more Poe-like and I'm happy to get some air finally with this thing coming out. The elevator pitch is basically, and I think it's super timely to be honest with you, not that I would desire any of this darkness in the world for its own sake, but Poe's life was a dumpster fire. He dealt with horrendous circumstances. His era was absurdly depressing. And his life was just a story of loss and disappointment from beginning to end, pretty much. And yet, the scale of his success is absolutely spectacular. He has an NFL team name for one of his poems. Britney Spears named it Tour After a Dream Within a Dream. His relevance throughout American culture is unreal. The Washington Post just called him the most influential American writer. So the juxtaposition of dumpster fire of a life and spectacular success really drew me in. And I think it has the power to provide a different kind of example in the self-help realm for folks. Like maybe you don't have to be a paragon of virtue. Maybe you can screw up your life and still succeed, which for a screw up like me is a hopeful message. I'm so curious too, when you're in the position of, of writing a book like this one, did you understand your position to be one of interpretation, uh, of channeling, of um, simply, you know, moving information from a 19th century context into a 21st century context? How, how formative did you see your relationship to Poe's work? Were you, were you aiming to sort of stand aside or were you aiming to do various like acts of interpretation and shaping of your own? I mean, part of the joke is that I'm reading his life for self-help lessons. So, but the point is a re-examination because I think this is just fundamental to Poe in general because so many of us read him when we're children or adolescents. I certainly did, countering him in elementary school. And then to come back and read him as an adult 
He's an utterly different character. Speaking of metaphor, you understand that the stories of torture are really about depression and despair. Uh, so I think we're always re-examining Poe. We're always kind of returning to him. So I was happy to bring <laughs> the 21st century anachronism and my own spin because all of the biographers of Poe have taken a very firm stance either for or against the dude. So I wanted to kind of put my spin on that one too. It's always nice to free yourself from having to have an opinion about someone who is dead. I mean, you can obviously, but you also just don't have to because they have died. And um, you can you can live in that freedom of saying, I don't need to have an opinion or, or I don't need to have a, an immediate informative opinion. Yeah, I mean, no one can be hurt anymore, which is a wonderful thing. I mean, even so, it's hard to make jokes about some of the stuff in his life because it is absolutely so dark and I would feel like an asshole if I was joking about his wife's death. So it's kind of veers between satire and seriousness. Yeah, that's interesting too, especially just thinking about, you know, Poe's relationship to like horror and the uncanny and the numinous and the unspoken and the idea of, you know, as I write about him or as I read him, I feel a desire to relieve tension with a joke or, or resolve something that feels unresolved with a joke, which is something that I, I often share. I often have that desire uh, in, in my own work. Um, and then thinking of that as like something that uh, is, is very much in line with what Poe was always like reaching for and reaching towards was, uh, you know, more oddness, more mismatch, more creepiness, more uh, uncertainty, more unsolidity. And um, it's just sort of interesting to notice like that sort of push and pull and that tension, even, even if we were reading uh, work from somebody who was has long since left the earth. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we read him as an adult and you see he was much funnier than he's ever gotten credit for. Um, and also the spookiness, you, you realize it's kind of all in service of something. Yes, he was writing horror stories for the market and he was brilliant at adapting to the market that way. But also it's meant to be metaphorical and understood on a different plane. And that's a real pleasure too, because in a way, like he doesn't lie to you about how dark life can be sometimes if you're in a dark place yourself then he can be almost a relief that way. Yeah, I, I think he can be a wonderful uh, uh, source of um, intensity when you are feeling sort of hemmed in by people's desires to euphemize or, or turn something complicated into uh, something peaceful or a platitude or, or um, with a sense of an ending. Well put, absolutely. I think he gives you a freedom to let your feelings roam around into some very dark places. And also it's kind of a reminder when you spend time with him of this dude was incredibly weird and yet we love him for it. Maybe that's possible for us too. Yeah. I so appreciated um, your, your essay about um, Poe and like splitting uh, that, that came out in the millions a couple of years ago. I know that you had written it in the context of, of how you felt like it possibly spoke to some of the themes in Jordan Peele's uh, second movie, Us. Um, but it was such a funny, again, moment of, of, of timeliness because I had just recently been thinking about um, uh, two different Bronte novels, um, The Professor and uh, The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, because mm. I realized I had mixed up the endings in my head. Um, as, as you may know, I don't know if you've read either The Professor or The Tenant of Wildfell Hall. Um, the Professor ends uh, with the sort of narrator uh, who has you know, married his, his, uh, his object of, of love uh, and they have a son, um, and you know it's 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 odd. The Brontes always have an odd relationship to the marriage plot, obviously, but it's odd because 
you know, the story is wrapping up, wrapping up. And there's just this sort of interlude where he talks about his son's attachment to a dog. The dog gets rabies. He has to shoot the dog. His son doesn't understand why he did that, thinks it was an act of sort of needless cruelty. Um, and that, in turn, that act of violence followed by a reinforced connection with mother and like anger at the father, it, it makes the narrator think, you know, and now I'm envisioning the necessary day we have to send him off to Eton. Um, and we have to... Um, and sort of fantasizes about the kinds of violence that his son will experience there and feels both like incredible dread at that thought. He talks about it as like uprooting his only tree and also sort of insists on these things are going to have to be, if not whipped out of him, at least drawn out through, uh, you know, serious physical hardships and it will hopefully be the making of him. And I, for some reason, it felt more associative with the tenant of Waldo Hall because of all its preoccupations with like, the bad seed of the first alcoholic husband, but it wasn't, it was the professor. And um, mm. we talk a lot in, in that essay about sort of uh, what, what um, forgive me, I, I can't remember the other author's name off the top of my head, but like boarding school syndrome. Yeah, sort of George effects that, Yeah, the, the effect that uh, for a certain class of British and, and, and American child of, of, you know, certainly the 19th century that, um, that sense of being sent away to like an externalized curriculum of violence, you know, what that does to your sense of connecting to your uh, vulnerable self, your empathic self, uh, and, and how it can feel like a kind of doubling, like a kind of having both, having with an, an LV to be clear. Um, I, I don't know, I was just really struck by that. And it was such a, a unique reading on uh, doubling generally, at least not one that I had come across before. And so I was really grateful to you for, that. I'm glad that it was already on my mind a little bit. Oh, thanks so much. That one piece was a joy to write because I really was singing my teeth in there. I, I don't know that someone's made the boarding school connection with Poe before. He had an experience at boarding school. And William Wilson, as you know, one of his most famous stories, directly uses his boarding, boarding school experience down to the fact that he kept the headmaster's name the same. So we know there's a strong autobiographical element to it, and it is about um, encountering your encountering yourself and the dread that that causes. And I think the connection with the doubling is that oftentimes when we're put, and I don't want to speak for everyone's traumatic experience, but trauma can bring on a sense that you have to form a shell of yourself in order to survive, and you separate from your feelings in that way. Freud had the term soul murder. Um, really just kind of popularizing it. But it's the idea that you have severed yourself from your empathetic self, from the deepest understanding of yourself. And now you no longer have access to that. And it's painful. It's You feel as though you've done it to yourself, but often it happens to us in a situation. I was writing that essay also too, when um, children were being separated from their parents at the border. So it was very much on my mind that things that happen to us during our most formative periods of life can be the most traumatic. Um, but we all kind of experience that in a sense so because of first world privilege and we're separated from a lot of people's pain. I don't know. I think you can kind of take this thought all over the place. Yeah, I, there's so many different places that I want to keep taking these thoughts, but I also realize that we can't take up your entire afternoon. So I will... Um, instead, lead us into our final letter, and the subject is Need the Money. My elderly father and I were estranged for a long time. He was physically and emotionally abusive to all of his kids. 
We recently got back in touch, mostly because I felt sympathy for his advancing age and the death of his second wife, and also to help my older brother, who was struggling with having to support our father in his grief. Things are pretty distant, and I'm fine with that. He has no contact with the rest of our siblings, some due to his choice and some due to theirs. I've recently heard that he has made a will, leaving money to me and two other siblings, leaving the others out. My initial plan was to wait until he passed, then split the money with the ones he left out, effectively uh, screw him for his favoritism. But I've just been diagnosed with terminal breast cancer. Hopefully I've got five or 10 more years if the treatment works. I've got two small kids, one with a disability he'll need ongoing support for. My husband and I really need the money and I feel such anxiety about my kids' future. So I selfishly want to keep the money for them, but my siblings are deserving too. And I love them too. It's the right thing to do. This one, also really tender. I feel so much sympathy for this letter writer. Did anything in particular kind of jump out at you as being the most important or primary thing to think about? Yeah, she absolutely, or he or she has my sympathy. Those are difficult situations on top of difficult situations. You're dealing with a terminal diagnosis and maybe bringing up all sorts of feelings just on its own. And you're also facing a very significant financial need and that you're terminally ill and you have a child who's going to need ongoing care, which kind of would lead to my answer, which is, I think it might be acceptable in this situation to keep the money for yourself because you do truly have a need. Yeah. I I mean, my first thought here was even before that, you know, kind of going back to that other uh, second question, which is if you have a complicated or estranged father who perhaps there's not a long history of unbroken trust with, you know, take the things that you hear or hear secondhand with a grain of salt. Like, I, I don't want to introduce additional pessimism here, but I was like, you know, letter writer, you say that you've recently heard he made a will. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe you heard correctly, maybe you didn't. Maybe he has less money than you think, or maybe by the time he eventually dies, whenever that may be, he will have less money than he does now. Um, that's not to say I don't think that you'll ever potentially see any money from his estate. I just mean, don't make your plans based on, I'm going to get such and such amount of money from my father in the next five or 10 years, because that's just, there's so many unknown variables. He might change his mind in between now and his eventual death. He might get mad at you again and cut you off again. So I, I would hold that money very loosely in your mind. Yeah, it's true. I've certainly seen this in the wild that manipulative people who may be dying will say a lot of things about wills that may or may not be true. So it may not even be the case that this is the reality or that you can take it seriously. might be heartbreaking to take it seriously. And then it turns out to be another manipulation or something along those lines. It may not be the case, just throwing it out there in case it is, because people say a lot of things. Right. And it may be true now. And again, he might get pissed off at you in a year and a half and then cut you out, or he might, you know, lose all of his money in a bad investment. Um, or he might decide to leave it to, you know, uh, somebody else on a whim. I I don't want to say any of those things are guaranteed. Just there seems to be this like weight on the letter writer of like, this has basically already happened. Mm -hmm. And, um, I want to try to lift some of that weight. Yeah. My other thought there is if you have been told by your medical team that like a good case scenario is five or 10 more years, you do not need to feel guilty about holding on to an inheritance so that you can like, you know, pay for some of your own, on, sorry, pay for some of your own ongoing care 
or set aside, you know, money for your kids. It would be wonderful if you were struggling with terminal breast cancer. You are, keep that money. If you get it, by all means, use it for your kids. Cheerfully, with no guilt. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think there's any moral duty beyond that. Though I think, you know, the best case scenario, you would explain this to your siblings with full honesty and with loving candor. And hopefully they could receive that message. Yeah, I I hope very much none of them would begrudge you with your five to 10 year best case scenario diagnosis, any money that you were able to get from your piece of shit father. I really hope and I don't think that they would feel that way about you. Um, I, I really understand and appreciate that initial plan that you would have. And just that sort of like, this will be one opportunity I will be able to have to help heal some of the like pain that my siblings and I all experienced equally. Because like we all came in for our fair share, of the, not fair share, but you know, our share of the abuse under him. And then he wanted to, you know, continue to divide us after he died. And I was able to put a stop to that. I get that that's a lovely idea. But again, this is just, they want you to have, they would want you to have it. I would hope any halfway decent person would want that. And if you can just take that guilt right off your plate and concentrate on the other things in your life. I don't, I think it's, you're a good person that would, it would occur to you to be conflicted about it at all, but you are more than entitled to this blood money. Yeah. And just, yeah, continue to be gentle with yourself. Take good care of yourself. Try to look for opportunities to put down any heavy weights that you may be carrying. I I hope that you get more time even than you have been sort of estimated by your doctors. But regardless, uh, just please don't try to make you yourself responsible for the damaging and painful things that your father has done. You know, that's not your work to try to undo it. It sounds like you have always been you know, conscientious of your other siblings' well-being and, and sought to be like caring, compassionate. And that is wonderful. If you can get any money out of the old man, by all means. Yeah. Cash that check with a smile. Embrace it for what it's worth after a very, what sounds like a very difficult upbringing. Yeah. yeah it's usually, you know, trying to monetize a bad father usually doesn't get you anywhere. So if you unexpectedly get a little money out of it, great. Usually it just sucks and you get no money from it. Um, Or, you know, the money was on like, I don't know, feeding you as a child, which is not exactly fun, free money. It's just sort of work of keeping a child alive. And with that incoherent thought, I'm going to wrap up. Do you have any final words of wisdom for our listeners uh, that you you think Poe might want them to have? I will say that further to the last letter, his life was shaped by the fact that his wealthy foster father cut him out of the well. Uh, And Poe had to do a lot of hack work to make up the gap. So one thing I think we should take away from his life is "Eh, you got to do what you got to do. We all have to survive. So in a sense, you can take some of the pressure off yourself, no matter if you're ethically making a living somehow, then you're doing okay. I'm just now, by the way, picturing Edgar Allan Poe's head like superimposed onto a raven, kind of like the little uh, dinosaur creatures that like worked for the Flintstones on the Flintstones. Oh yeah. Um, like as a dishwasher's thing, just being like, it's a living. <laughs> it is, you know, and it's apparently no bar to you're being reg- recognized as a world-changing genius. So We can only hope. Okay, Kat, thank you so, so much. Uh, it was such fun to get to have you on the show today. Uh, I can't tell you how much I appreciated it. Thank you. Danny, what a pleasure. This is so cool. Thank you. 
Thanks for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up, to subscribe, or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Also, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you get a minute. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations and interview questions with our guests. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you need some little advice or big advice and you'd like me to read your letter on the show, head to slate.com slash mood to find our Big Mood, Little Mood listener question form or find a link in the description of the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. I don't want to waste too much time trying to split hairs about you know, well, I wasn't screaming at my partner directly. I was just screaming a lot in front of my partner and scaring them. That's not a good thing to do. That's not a kind thing to do. That's not a supportive thing to do. And it's less important to me what prompted that yelling so much as figuring out how can you make sure that you don't do that again? Because I think it's a little bit of a, a, a waste of time to try to figure out, well, it was just because I was so upset. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.